Chapter Twenty Two of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter Twenty Two. Wakened by the sound of rushing waters, she ran barefoot to the window. There was no sign of rain in that hard marbled sky. The mountains looked as if rain had never dampened them. She could not think just what their color reminded her of for a time. Then she recalled the burnt sugared almonds heaped in the window of Calverly's one candy store. How she had loved them! But this scorched, mottled brown mountain range had no sweetness, only inconceivable bulk. Still the water gurgled. She saw that the yard about the bungalow, soft and dusty last night, was now a shallow lake with waters dancing everywhere. She thrust her head out of the window and drew it in again, for a Jap was shutting the water gates of an overflowing trough extending as far as she could see. It was an irrigation ditch. He was flooding the ground before the sun could turn the water into burning lenses. She was to learn that the desert irrigated yields more richly than rich soil untended, just as common human soil responds with miracles to lavish floods of encouragement. A boy from the main building of the hotel came skipping across the lawn to waken Leva, who must be up betimes. Mem would not yield to her appeals that she should come along and resume the movie-picture work. She would taste no more of the forbidden cup. She put aside especially the temptation to be near Tom Holby and to taste the wine of his approval and his thoughtfulness. Temptation, like love, follows who flees. Mem went back to bed, but, goaded by discontent, rose, bathed, and dressed, and went to the hotel for breakfast, determined that she would inquire at once the way to the Randalls ranch, and take up her humble future before her funds were further diminished. The dining room was deserted, save for one man, and that was Tom Holby. "'Hello!' he cried. "'Come sit with me. You're not working? Neither am I. I'm a gentleman till this afternoon.' They're taking shots that I'm not in, so I slept late. Our poor star, Robina, is out in the gas stove, turning herself into a fricassee, while I loll at ease. She is being kidnapped today by a roving band of bad Arabs. I was just starting to rescue her yesterday, disguised as a sheikh or something, when I fell in with the famine mob. I rescued her last week up on the lot in Los Angeles. Mem looked so bewildered that he explained, You see... We built a whole Arabian street on the lot, and I broke in and broke out and broke up all the furniture, tearing Robina from the villains. Then we came down here to take the scenes of her capture. You'll get used to this upside-down business when you've been in the movies a while longer. I've been in them as long as I'm going to be. Oh, no, you haven't, Holby laughed. I wouldn't blame you for quitting if every day were like yesterday, but you got the worst of it at the first. I've never known a day like yesterday, but you'll not be likely to have another in a thousand years. I loved it. Then why are you quitting? She could not tell him the truth, and no lie occurred to her, so she simply drew a veil across her eyes and left him to his own surmises. It was not his nature to persist when a woman rebuffed him, even though that was a rare experience with him. He waved the mystery as her own affair and spoke up cheerily. Order a good breakfast and come with me to the Palm Canyon. They say it's glorious. It will buck you up and save me from the horrors of solitude. 
He took an unfair advantage of her by appealing to her charity again. It was the best way to tyrannize over her. She consented for lack of ability to imagine a polite excuse, and finished her breakfast while he went in search of a car. He came back with a rusty fliver which he drove himself. There were seven miles of road winding in all directions, especially up and down. She praised Holby for the skill with which he kept his hands and feet playing. I had to drive one of these in my last picture, he said. You have to handle nearly everything in the pictures. I've driven a stagecoach, pursued by Indians through canyons, and a coach and four down Fifth Avenue, and a donkey chaise in a London scene, and a sidecar in an imitation Ireland, a motorboat, a street car, a caterpillar tractor, an airship, a chariot, and a steam shovel. Talented lad, eh? Look, did you see that? Mem had seen it. A long rope of scarlet silk ran across the road and threaded the sagebrush, as if a red lasso had learned to flee of its own volition. It was a scarlet racer. Lots of snakes along here, but mostly harmless, he said. Robina loves snakes. Do you? Her shivering repugnance answered for her. After a time, they passed a patch of ground a little drearier than the rest of the landscape. It had been cleared once, and a wooden cross erected there. Holby answered her questioning stare. That's probably the grave of some poor fellow who died of thirst. A villager was telling me last night that only last week a man was found dead within a mile of his ranch. He was that near to good water, but he couldn't make the distance. Out of his mind, probably. They said he was almost naked. Men who are dying for water have a queer mania for tearing off their clothes. Mem was startled. She had heard this very fact from the man in Yuma. She had decided to let Mr. Woodville die of thirst. It seemed odiously cruel now to subject even an imaginary man to such a death. This reminded her that she had not yet explained to Mr. Holby the puzzle of her name. He had evidently dismissed it from his mind, for he was running on. I don't suppose the pictures can show anybody dying of thirst now, with a censor in full power. They believe in clothes and lots of them. It looks as if they'd make the moving pictures die of thirst just inside of the promised land. Just as the hard times are coming on, the censors rise up like a sandstorm and blow from all directions. You can hardly find a story that can stand their sandblast. They eat away the plot till it falls with a crash. Just as, see that telephone pole chewed away by the sand that blows all the time against it? Well, that's what the censors are doing to the picture game. If they don't topple the whole thing over, it won't be their fault. But what will they do for salaries then? In some of the states, they cut out all reference to expected children. Would you believe it? They cut out a scene where a working man came home and found his wife making little clothes and rejoiced and was proud. Was ever anybody on earth as indecent and filthy-minded as a prude? All crime and sin are pretty well forbidden also. Hideous, isn't it, that grown people in a grown-up country called the land of the free and the home of the brave should be bullied and handcuffed? till we can't even tell a story? We can't play Shakespeare, of course, or the Bible stories, or any of the big literary works any more. And they do it all in the name of protecting morals. As if girls and boys never went wrong until the movies came along. As if you could stop human beings from being human by closing up the theaters and telling lies to the children. 
but there's no use whining. We'll have to take our paragoric. The crookeder the politician, the more anxious he is to win over the bigots. If he'll give them the censorship and a few other idiotic tyrannies, they won't interfere with his graft. Soon they arrived at Palm Canyon and ran the car well up into the gorge along a water that descended a winding stair with little cascades and broad pools. In some of them, water snakes could be seen twisting shadowily. But the wonder of the place was the embassy of stately palms that had marched down the ravine to the edge of the desert and greeted the visitor with the majesty of lofty chieftains in great war bonnets of green plumes. Some were tall and slender with headdresses of fronded glory. Others were short and fat and so shaggy of trunk that they resembled the legs of giant cowboys and chaparreos. There was a little cabin halfway up the canyon, but it was locked and deserted. On a bulletin board were placards begging for mercy to animal kind and praising nakedness as akin to godliness. He ought to be on a censorship board, said Holby. The hermit who kept this retreat was making good his creed, for when Mem and Holby got out of their car and stared from the edge of the barrier down into a stream, meandering through an Eden of shade, they saw him naked at his bath. Both pretended not to have noticed him and turned away. Before long he came up the steep path in apostolic garb with robe, rope girdle, sandals, and staff. He wore a beard and long chestnut curls, as in the tradition of the Messiah. How easy it is to look like the pictures of Christ, Tom Holby said. It angered him a little to meet a man whose ideals and practices were so contrary to his own. The hermit lived on next to nothing, took no part in the activities of mankind, hid himself in obscurity, and led a life of sanctified indolence. He did not mortify his flesh, and he did not follow the medieval theory that baths are diabolic and dirt divine. He was neat, and even his nails were manicured with care. But he made no use of his body for the public good or gaiety. He abstained from beauty and suppressed his emotions. Tom Holby, by the very opposite ambition, treated his flesh as an instrument of many uses. He diverted millions of people, and his prosperity was gauged by the delight he gave in quality and quantity. He was so far from seeking oblivion that his very postures were multiplied and sent about the world. The ambitions of the two men were of mutual criticism and reproach. Yet Holby was polite to the polite hermit who invited the wanderers into his neat little cabin, sold them postal cards with views of the canyon, then, with a most unhermit-like skill, played them love-tunes on an Hawaiian guitar of his own making. He held in his right hand a bar of steel with which he gave his melodies a quaint sliding tone, an amorous whimper of a squirrel-like pathos. From this cozy retreat, Holby led Mem down to the center of the palm haunt. He was thinking aloud. Funny business, being a professional good man. That sort of fellow hates the world, and is afraid of it, and retires to the desert to save his soul. Always seemed to me there was something lacking in that idea of being good. Save your own soul, and let the world go to the devil. It means nothing to the hermit, whether there is war or peace, famine or prosperity. He doesn't help any lonely people to smile. He doesn't feed anybody, or give any money to anybody. He doesn't build any railroads, or cathedrals, or theaters, paint any pictures, or write any songs, or vote, or make shoes, or anything. 
He doesn't commit any sins, maybe, any of the crowd's sins, but he doesn't commit any good deeds either. Still, if a man is so excited about his soul, it's better if he will go away by himself and save it than to spend his life trying to save everybody else's soul by censorships and foolish laws about tobacco and Sunday and art and everything. In the depth of the canyon the palms were densely congregated, their branches interlaced into a roof of murmurous green. Mem was in a mood of beyond the world. She felt bewitched as she walked over the dried fans of fallen leaves and listened to the birds that made a lyric caravansary of this haven. It was a realm of Arabian magic with no hint of the American magic that our familiar eyes ignore. Mem dropped wearily down upon a stone by the brook in a thatched tent of palms. Tom Holby, though there was a place at a distance, sat down at her side. This threw her heart into a flutter. His own heart was evidently on the scurry, too, and there was a fierce debate within him whether he should speak or not. Finally, he said, "'You've got me at a terrible disadvantage here. I'm all alone with you and helpless.' It wouldn't do me any good to scream, and I'm so weak that you could overpower me with a look. She could not make him out at all. He had to explain, baldly. You know, when a woman lures a man out to a solitude like this? Lures? Well, use any word you like. Just say, goes with a man. Anyway, she sets the poor fellow to guessing mighty hard. I wouldn't annoy you for worlds. I've got a queer hankering to be of some service to you, but I can't place you anywhere. She did not know his language. Can't place you at all. You have a sweet, innocent, beautiful face, and your eyes are as gentle as a dove's. But that has been the case with some of the daintiest little desperados that ever tore up society. The first time I met you, you told me your name was Remember Steddon. You called me Mr. Woodville when we said goodbye in Tucson. A week or two, and we meet again, and you are Mrs. Woodville, and your husband is dead, and you're going to be a chambermaid on a ranch. It's all possible, but it isn't a bit convincing, and you've got me puzzled. If you've committed a crime and are hiding out, you'd better get into a bigger crowd because you're as conspicuous out here as old Jacinto Peak. If you've committed a crime, I'm sure you had a good reason to, and I'm no informer, but I wish you would tell me whether you are the cleverest adventuress I ever met, or just a poor, scared, little, lonely, lost child. Her confusion was that of a child. He could see no trace of insincerity in her panic, and there was a wedding ring on her finger. But this did not impress him much. He had seen too many married actresses take off their rings to play maidens, and too many unmarried actresses put them on to play wives. He had seen wonderful sincerity in impersonation. Robina could make him weep almost at will in her scenes of hapless innocence. He broke out impatiently when Mem did not speak. Tell me honestly one thing. Is there a Mr. Woodville? Were you ever really married to anybody? She turned frightened eyes upon him and spoke with a parrying evasion. Why, why should you doubt it? He stared at her sharply. Then his eyes softened and he mumbled. You poor little thing. What on earth are you up to? What are you running away from? Why should you come to this place out of season 
under a false name with a wedding ring you bought yourself. She carried her other hand to conceal the ring as if it were a shameful baby. The instinctive gesture convinced Holby that he had guessed well. Now she fell into an ague of terror. She looked this way and that as if for a door of escape but she knew that on all sides of her was a wilderness of mountains and desert. She was horribly afraid of Holby. He had the domineering, demanding manner of a police officer. But instead of denouncing her or arresting her, he suddenly took her two trembling hands in one of his, and with the other pressed her to him and held her tight. She struggled fiercely, yet with the feeling of a lamb in a shepherd's clasp. She knew that he was no enemy, yet she could not accept him as her friend on so short an acquaintance. Friendships were not made at such speed in Calverly. So she fought until he released her. Then she rose and staggered along a crackling path, scattering little lizards that seemed rather to pretend than to feel fear. She began to weep, ran blindly into one of the palms, and fell, but into Holby's arms again. "'Tell me the truth,' he pleaded." let me be your friend. I want to help you. If it would help you most to let you alone, I'll do that. If it would help you to be held tight and hugged hard and kissed and loved, I'll do that, and mighty gladly. But in heaven's name, don't stand there and have chills and fever and not speak. She felt a mad yearning to tell him the truth. She felt that he would be very merciful and wise and everything wonderful. She felt that he would not be shocked. Those actors and actresses could not be shocked by anything, probably, and yet a kind of snobbishness, even in humiliation, locked her jaws on her secret. She was a clergyman's daughter, after all, and it would be an appalling come-down from all her teaching to make a movie actor her confidant and accept his advice and help and, heavens, she was already accepting his caresses. Mem was a princess of the parsonage, and she was suddenly recalled to her pride of estate. "'Please,' she said, quite haughtily, "'oh, please!' Tom Holby writhed when his generous motives were flung back into his face. He was filled with rage, and yet he pitied her more than ever. He pitied her as the vagabond pities the hidebound Puritan who sets him in the pillory. He longed for such freedom and equality as he enjoyed in his wrangles with Robina Teal, who swore at him and struck at him with a manly vigor. He controlled himself and groaned an ironic, Forgive me. When she ingeniously answered, I do, he almost suffocated with tormented wrath and sardonic amusement. He dumbfounded her by speaking in the jargon of his craft. They say that when Griffith wanted to get the final grimace of agony in Lillian Gish's face, in the scene where her illegitimate baby dies, in Way Down East, you know, they photographed her face while he held her feet and tickled them. I don't know how true the story is, but I feel just that way. Do I look it? He was so interested in expression that he actually thrust his face close to hers for her verdict on his mien. She had still another baffler for him. Who's Griffith? This heathenish ignorance of the first god of the American cinema took his breath like a blow on the solar plexus, and he could only whisper huskily, Let's go back. End of chapter 22 Recording by Deanna Beauvais